This biscuit is available year-round, but it's traditionally associated with the Christmas season. Its history is connected to royalty and even gets a royal seal of approval. Consisting of just four simple ingredients, this treat is surprisingly complex in its flavor and texture. The container for this treat has also been the bane of any child looking for something sweet, only to find something non-edible entirely. So grab a nice cup of tea, because we're exploring the history and origins of shortbread. I'm your host, Glenn Warren, and welcome to another serving of Seasons Eatings, the podcast which explores the history and origins of your favorite Christmas foods. Seasons Eatings can be found wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Seasons Eatings is also found on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you love the show, then I humbly ask you to share this podcast with someone you think would love to hear more about the history of Christmas and the foods which shape the holiday we love so much. If you want to give me suggestions for future episodes, just email me at seasonseatingspodcast at gmail.com. All the links can be found in the show notes at seasonseatingspodcast.com. Shortbread, or shorty, is a traditional Scottish biscuit usually made from one part sugar, two parts butter, and three to four parts plain wheat flour. Unlike many other biscuits and baked goods, shortbread does not contain any leavening, such as baking powder or baking soda. Shortbread is widely associated with Christmas and Hogmanay festivities in Scotland, and some Scottish brands are exported around the world. Shortbread originated in Scotland. Although it was prepared during much of the 12th century and probably benefited from cultural exchange with French pastry chefs during the old alliance between France and Scotland, the refinement of shortbread is popularly credited to Mary, Queen of Scots, in the 16th century. This type of shortbread was baked, cut into triangular wedges, and flavored with caraway seeds. The triangular wedges became known as petticoat tails in Scots, it's been suggested that a French term for the wedges of shortbread was petit gâteau or petit gâtel, little cakes, and this became petticoat tails. It's now thought the Scots term derives from the decorated round edge of the segments, which resemble petticoats. However, these traditional Scottish shortbread biscuits may in fact date back beyond the 12th century. The triangles fit together into a circle and echo the shape of pieces of fabric used to make full gourd petticoat during the reign of Elizabeth I. The theory here is that the name may have come from the word from the pattern, which was tally, so the biscuits became known as petticoat tallis. The first printed recipe for shortbread was in 1736 and was from a Scotswoman named Mrs. McClintock. Because of the price of the rich ingredients of butter and sugar, shortbread was expensive and reserved as a luxury for special occasions, such as Christmas, Hogmanay, which is Scottish New Year's Eve, and weddings. In Scotland, it was traditional to break a de decorated shortbread cake, or infar cake, or dreaming bread, over the head of a new bride on the entrance of her house. Shortbread was also given as a gift. 
While shortbreads ingredients are few, the reason this biscuit is so delicious is because of gluten. Or, more precisely, the lack of it. The three primary ingredients of any pastry are fat, flour, and water. The ratio and handling of these ingredients gives us the full spectrum of pastry, from delicate tenderness to brittle flakiness. Cut the fat into small pieces with a knife and mix with the flour. Using your fingers, rub the fat into the flour until the mixture resembles rough breadcrumbs. Now you sprinkle a little water, a little at a time, onto the surface, mix with a knife, then with your hands until a ball of dough forms with the texture of a slightly dry Play-Doh. Keep handling to a minimum as it is not cold hands that are a key to a quality pastry, but minimizing the formation of the stringy elastic protein gluten. By rubbing fat into flour before adding any liquid, small cells of flour are coated in fat giving pastry its fragmentary, discontinuous particle texture. This layer of fat makes it difficult for water to hydrate the flour, so structure-giving gluten proteins cannot form. The more coated the flour cells, therefore, the less well they will bind with their neighbors, and the weaker or shorter the pastry will be. However, if the flour is too well coated with fat, the pastry will not hold together and will become difficult to work with. This can happen if you use oil or if the solid fat is too warm. The type of fat also has a significant impact. For me, flavor is the most important consideration, so I always use melt-in-the-mouth butter. However, it has its disadvantages. Between 15 and 20 degrees centigrade, butter has a solid content ideal for handling. Outside this range, it's either too fluid or too hard. This handling range is particularly important for laminated pastries, such as phyllo, which require layers of solid fat. For pastry, a lower solids content is useful as it helps coat the flour. Manufacturers have spent a lot of time and money developing oil-based shortenings that have specific textures over large temperature ranges. They can produce a great looking pastry, but the higher melting temperatures mean that the fat doesn't melt in your mouth, and that results in sort of a waxy mouthfeel. Pastry of all kinds needs to be left to rest in a cool place for at least 15 minutes. This allows the fat to re-solidify after handling, making the pastry easier to work with and ensuring that it will hold its shape during the early stages of cooking. Resting also allows two other processes to occur, the diffusion of water through the dough and the relaxation of gluten strands. When making pastry, flakiness and tenderness are at odds. Tenderness is favored by conditions that discourage the development of gluten. And since hydration encourages gluten formation, we add as little water as possible and then let it diffuse and become well distributed. By contrast, laminated pastries require layers of pastry with sufficient gluten to hold their shape, so a little more water is often required. The ultimate form of this glutinous type of pastry is phyllo, which in its raw form consists of one thin glutinous layer. 
Filo pastry contains very little fat itself, but relies on fat being added later between these incredibly thin sheets, allowing them to separate during cooking and so shatter in the mouth into delicate, fine shards. Water content is also affected by the type of fat used. Pure fat, such as lard, contain virtually no water, whereas butter is about 15% water, and margarine has an even higher water content. For this reason, many people mix butter and lard to combine a flavorsome properties of butter and the better texture that lard provides. In breads and cakes, the gelatinization of starch helps gives it shape. In a short pastry, however, starch is generally less important. In hot water pastry, for example, the larger amount of water means that a strong gelatinized starch network have already formed before cooking, giving a very strong pastry to work with. In short pastry, there is so little water that the starch can only partially hydrate. However, in absorbing the little water available, it helps dry out the gluten network and so set the structure. So any sugar you added to the pastry will also help dry your pastry and develop color and flavor through caramelization. Gluten strands will form in your dough while you're working it. They will stretch and twist, giving elasticity to your dough, known as bounce back. The more you work with your dough, the more gluten will develop, leading to an elastic dough that will shrink in the oven and lack tenderness. This is why a light touch is so important when making shortbread and why the dough is left to relax in the fridge. Here the strands become more settled in their new form and so the dough becomes easier to shape and fold and roll and will not shrink in the oven. Shortbread is so named because of its crumbly texture. The cause of this texture is its high fat content provided by the butter. The short or crumbly texture is a result of the fat inhibiting the formation of long protein gluten strands. The word shortening refers to any fat that may be added to produce a short crumbly texture. Short in baking context means that there's a high proportion of fat to flour. This is usually just applied to non-yeast doughs, by the way, so you won't see references to a short challah dough or a brioche, for example. Usually these short doughs are very rich, crumbly, and tender with butter. They tend to be crisp instead of chewy and slightly sandy. There are two different explanations for the name of the cookie though. Some sources cite the crumbly or short texture of the product. Others attribute the name to its high percentage of shortening or butter. Butteriness is also an important quality in shortbread, so much so that in 1921, the British government legislated that a product called shortbread must get at least 51% of its fat from real butter. Outside the UK, however, there's no such requirement. So check your label to ensure yourself an authentic shortbread experience, and if you can, hold out for the 100% butter cookies. In British English, shortbread and shortcake were synonyms for several centuries, starting in the 1400s. Both referred to the crisp, crumbly, cookie-type baked good rather than the softer cake. The shortcake, mentioned in Shakespeare's play The Merry Wives of Windsor, first published in 1602, was a reference to the cookie style of shortbread. 
Shortbread cookies are baked at a low temperature to prevent browning. Originally, shortbread was baked in a large round, a throwback to ancient New Year's cakes that were symbols of the sun. The large round was then broken down into triangles or petticoat tails. And today, you'll find shortbread baked in every traditional cookie shape, including rounds, squares, hearts, and fingers. Some are decorated with fork points, and some are pressed with fancy molds that have elaborate designs, including family crests. Over time, Scottish shortbread recipes were variously flavored with almonds, chocolate chips, cinnamon, ginger, lemon, orange, and vanilla. Scotland has its regional shortbread variations as well. In the Shetland Islands and the Orkney Islands, for example, caraway seeds are added to the recipe, and the cookie is called a bride's bun. At Christmas, a variation is made with citrus peel and almonds. We'll discover Scotland's premier shortbread manufacturer and a bit of history about the biscuit tin after the break. Hello, this is Art from A Cozy Christmas Podcast. We're the podcast that explores the coziest stories and memories of Christmas. Join me as I invite you to listen in as I read some of the classic stories of Christmas. Stories like The Gift of the Magi or A Christmas Carol, among many others you may not have heard of before. Sometimes I'll have a guest on and we'll talk about Christmas and the stories that matter to them, like the stories of their favorite Christmas memories and traditions. Sometimes I'm joined by my favorite co-host, my daughter Grace, and we'll talk about and try different Christmas foods, play games, or chat about our favorite Christmas movies and traditions. And also teddy bears. So come on in, make yourself at home, and enjoy all the cozy Christmas stories and more heard here at the Cozy Christmas Podcast. You can find out more at www.cozychristmaspodcast.com. It's Christmas! Hello, this is Adam from Merry Britsmas. I am a Christmas fanatic from the UK who thinks that the world needs to know more about the traditions, telly and music that helps make a British Christmas really festive. I look at everything from mince pies to Boxing Day to Wham to Slade to the Royal Family to Doctor Who. If you want to find out more about a British Christmas or you are British and want a hit of nostalgia, Check me out at Merry Britsmas. And happy blooming Christmas to you and all. Although shortbread is made in many countries, it's perhaps most synonymous with Scotland and is often seen as the flagship of Scottish food. This is perhaps because whilst cakes and other butter biscuits are made around the world, the Scottish examples were judged to be the world's finest. Almost every country produced its own version of the butter biscuit, a simple combination of butter, flour, sugar, and salt. Only the Scottish examples were recognized as the finest examples in the world. And Walker's shortbread is perhaps better known than any other company in the world for the quality of its shortbread. The Walker's story begins in 1898, when 21-year-old Joseph Walker opened the doors of his own bakery with a loan of 50 pounds and the ambition to bake the world's finest shortbread. While some manufacturers began to cut corners by using margarine instead of butter, 
Joseph believed that people still appreciated the care that went into making a superior product like Walker's shortbread. And he was right. That's why, even after Joseph Walker died in 1954, his sons knew better than to alter a winningly simple recipe consisting of just four ingredients. Flour, pure creamy butter, sugar, and salt. In the first year of business, Joseph used every spare moment to perfect his shortbread recipe. It was time well spent. Soon, shooting parties from the local states were making detours just to visit Joseph's bakery. Walker's shortbread has been located within the same small community of Avalor in the last five generations, and several generations of local families have been employed over that time. The company has a relatively low employee turnover and firmly believes, wherever at all possible, in promoting from within the existing workforce and providing the necessary training and support. Starting from just a single bakery, the company, some 116 years later, is still based in Avalor, although production is somewhat bigger now. Walker's still uses the same traditional recipe, baking with only the finest ingredients possible. All products are guaranteed to be free of artificial preservatives, colorings, and additives. The company has a core workforce of approximately 1,200, and this number is increased with the addition of over 450 seasonal workers during peak production periods. Walker Shortbread is a major employer in the Moray area, with around a quarter of the workforce being foreign nationals who have settled in the area. The Walker's brand is so important to the people of Scotland and overall the UK that it received a royal warrant for supplying shortbread to the late Queen Elizabeth II and the royal household. A royal warrant of appointment is granted as a mark of recognition to people or companies who regularly supplied goods or services to the monarchy. And while it doesn't give Walker's exclusivity to supply shortbread, it certainly is a feather in the cap for the company. One thing that I always look forward to for the holidays is that decorative tin the shortbread comes in. Many of us had found an old metal tin in the cupboard and our mouth begins to salivate. Anticipating that first bite into a soft, buttery shortbread. We lift the lid and our eyes fall upon sewing supplies or some other non-edible odds and ends. The metal shortbread tin is stuffed back into the cupboard and our hopes for a crumbly biscuit dashed. Biscuit tins are steel cans made out of tin plate. This consists of steel sheets thinly coated with tin. The sheets are then bent into shape. By about 1850, Great Britain had become the dominant world supplier of tin plate through a combination of technical innovation and political control over most of the suppliers of tin ore. Biscuit tin manufacture was a small but prestigious part of the vast industry of tin plate production, which saw a huge increase in demand in the 19th century and was directly related to the growing industrialization of food production. By increasingly sophisticated methods of preservation and the requirements made by changing methods of distribution. The British Biscuit Tin came about when a Licensed Grocer Act of 1861 allowed groceries to be individually packaged and sold. 
coinciding with the removal of the duty on paper for printed labels, printing directly onto tin plate became common. The new process of offset lithography, patented in 1877, allowed multicolored designs to be printed onto elaborately shaped tins. The decorative biscuit tin was invented by Huntley and Palmers in 1831. A decorated biscuit tin was commissioned in 1868 by Huntley and Palmers from the London firm of De La Rue to design by Owen Jones. Early methods of printing included the transfer process, essentially the method used to decorate porcelain and pottery since about 1750, and the direct lithographic process, which involved laying an ink stone directly onto a sheet of tin. Its disadvantage was that correct color registration was difficult. The breakthrough in decorative tin plate production was the invention of the offset lithographic process. It consists of bringing a sheet of rubber into contact with the decorated stone, and then setting off the impression so obtained upon the metal surface. The advantages over previous methods of printing were that any number of colors can be used correctly positioned and applied to an uneven surface if necessary. Thus, the elaborately embossed colorful designs that were such a feature of the late Victorian biscuit tin industry became technically possible. The most exotic designs were produced in the early years of the 20th century, just prior to the First World War. In the 1920s and 30s, costs had risen substantially and the design of biscuit tins tended to be more conservative, with the exception of the tins targeted at the Christmas market and intended to appeal primarily to children. The designs generally reflected popular interests and tastes. Nowadays, you can find the metal tins decorated with so many different holiday pictures. There are snowy scenes, Santas, woodland animals, or just a festive display. You can even find your own empty metal tins at discount stores so you can fill them with your own baked shortbread or other treats. Forget cookie jars and gift baskets, it's all about these stainless steel and metal cookie boxes. So keep the tradition alive and mail a box of your holiday cookies and Christmas treats as a Christmas gift to a family member to spread the holiday spirit. Thank you for listening to this serving of Seasons Eatings. Seasons Eatings is available on Apple Podcasts, Google, Stitcher, TuneIn, Deezer, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Please, if you can leave a review about the show so we can spread the Christmas cheer. And if you let me know you've left a review, I'll send you a Seasons Eatings sticker as a personal thank you. Also, I would love to hear from you. Send me an email at seasonseatingpodcast at gmail.com and let me know how you like the show or suggestions for future episodes, or just to say hello. And now, I, we all get busy, so even sharing the podcast with someone you know who loves Christmas would be a big help. And if you're feeling extra generous this season, you can buy me an eggnog. Head on over to seasonseatingspodcast.com and click on the little cup in the corner. Each small donation helps with the daily running of the podcast and is greatly appreciated. I'm your host, Glenn Warren, and thank you for listening and tune in again for another serving of Seasons Eatings. All music for Seasons Eatings is used under the Creative Commons license.